All right, and welcome back. And tonight our guest is Paul Levinson. Paul, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Justin. So can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I do a whole bunch of things. I actually just got back from a uh, science fiction convention uh, in Philadelphia called Philcon. It's uh, been going on for 70 years. It's the longest-running science fiction convention in the United States. And that uh, actually uh, speaks to all three of the things I do uh, because uh, there were several panels in which I talked about science fiction. In one case, I read one of my new science fiction stories. Uh, I've been a science fiction uh, author really ever since I've been a kid, but uh, I didn't start uh, publishing until the early 1990s. And uh, I also did a little concert in which I uh, debuted my brand-new album called Welcome Up, Songs of Space and Time, which is an album of songs that are sort of, the music sort of sounds like the Beatles, mid-1960s. The lyrics are all science fiction. And then in addition to that, I write uh, a lot of nonfiction uh, about the impact of media, where it's going to go in the future. As a matter of fact, uh, in this very month, November 2019, there is uh, a book coming out about me and my work in China called Media Competition, Paul Levinson's study of the evolution of media. So I'm very excited about that. Obviously, a whole new audience, billions of potential readers in China. And then uh, in, in my spare time, I'm also a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University here in New York City. And uh, I've always loved, you know, talking, talking to people, and uh, I enjoy being uh, in front of a classroom talking uh, uh, these days every bit as much and even more as I did when I first started teaching in the mid-1970s. All right. Well, you've definitely had a well-varied career then. Yeah. I, well, you know, it's... Um, Everyone does, you know, what they, you know, feel uh, most comfortable doing. And uh, I've always been comfortable doing a lot of different things at the same time. I find that sort of doing one thing stimulates me to do other things in different areas. They sort of ricochet back and forth. The energy bounces from one kind of work to another, and so far it's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Well, we're here tonight to talk about um, two writers, Isaac Asimov and uh, Marshall McMullen, if I'm pronouncing Mc the last name right. McLuhan. McLuhan. Right. Can you tell our audience a little bit about them so some of them may not know who they are? Sure. Well, you know, interestingly, they both first became known to the public uh, in a really big way in the 1950s. And Isaac Asimov, actually, a little before Marshall McLuhan, he began publishing short stories in the 1940s. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of many other people, Isaac Asimov is the greatest science fiction writer who ever lived. He was certainly the most prolific when he uh, when he died uh, at not a very old age, just in his in his 70s, in the early 1990s. Uh, he uh, he had published uh, some 500 books, so that's pretty impressive. 
Anytime somebody tells me that I'm prolific, I, I tell them about Asimov. And as far as the quality of his writing, it's the finest uh, you know, writing in terms of drawing the reader into these both, on the one hand, exciting uh, stories, but on the other hand, very profound stories. So, for example, it was Isaac Asimov who came up with the three laws of robotics, uh, in, in a series of first stories and then novels that he wrote about robots. Uh, these three laws, in case anyone is interested, is a robot will never do anything to harm a human being. Uh, so that, that's the first law, the prime law. The, the second law is uh, a, a robot... Uh, will follow every human order given to it, except when it conflicts with the first law. And the third law is a robot will act on behalf of its own survival. And, and every uh, other author who's written about robots, uh, in one way or another, has bounced off these laws. So, for example, Westworld, you can look at Westworld and say what Westworld has done is created androids, hosts, or robots in which the third law, acting on their own behalf, has somehow circumvented the first law, never harm uh, a human being or allow harm to become a human being. He also wrote uh, something that won an award for the best trilogy of all time, the Foundation Trilogy, and it's just a wonderful story, series of stories, uh, novels, in which... Uh, there is someone who figures out how to predict history. Harry Seldon is his name, and he invents something called psychohistory in which he can sort of map where uh, society is going in the future. And, uh, you know, it's because it's a novel and what makes it exciting is that as good as he is figuring this out, there are things that sometimes happen that were not predicted. So uh, this uh, actually was probably among the first things that I read when I was a kid in the 1950s. And here I am talking about it all these years uh, later, so it made an impression on me. Now, Marshall McLuhan was not a science fiction writer. Uh, he, however, wrote stuff that was incredibly imaginative and also dealt with understanding where we were going and where we would be in the future. So probably his most well-known phrase, or certainly one of them, is the global village. And it's, it's really uh, fascinating to think about the fact that he wrote this, uh, the, talked about the global village back in 1962 in a book called The Gutenberg Galaxy. So in 1962... There was really no global communication community, right? There was no Internet. There was no, you know, Netflix uh, where people could see the same things, stream them all over the world. Uh, yeah, there was television, but television in 1962 was a national phenomenon, meaning people in a country could all watch the same television show but not people all around the world. And yet here he is in 1962 saying, well, our communications media are turning our world into a, a global village. And um, McLuhan uh, sadly 
passed away in 1980, literally on the doorstep of the digital revolution. So he never actually got to see, in reality, the global village that he was talking about. But we're certainly living in it now, and certainly the the, the rise of uh, apps that people use online, the the internet itself. Uh, if you think about it, uh, if, if you are talking to somebody on Facebook or on Twitter or Snapchat or or any of these apps. It's just as easy to talk to someone on that app who's living down the street from you as it is to talk to that person, and they may be on the other side of the world. So we now truly are living in an interactive global village, and uh, that's just one element of a vast number of observations and theories that McLuhan came up with and put forth uh, about media and the impact they were having on our lives. So I take it then that you would agree with the general consensus that he predicted the internet or social media as we see it today. A hundred percent. As a matter of fact, I wrote a book called Digital McLuhan, uh, and, and that book was published in 1999. That was after the internet was invented, but before social media and iPhones. And even before I wrote that book, I was saying back in the 1990s, as people were first getting online, getting onto the web, I, I saw back then that, hey, this is a fulfillment of what McLuhan was talking about back in the 1960s. And uh, it's not that he was clairvoyant. It's that he understood human communication, and he understood how we use media and how we develop media. And so he, he saw back then that this is where we were headed. Okay. Another book that he was known for was his book, Understanding Media. Could you fill us in a little bit on that? Sure. Understanding Media, that's indeed his other great work, the first one being The Gutenberg Galaxy. So Understanding Media was published in 1964, two years after The Gutenberg Galaxy. That's also you know, chock full of brilliant insights. Probably the one that he's best known for is the medium is the message. And what he is saying there, and it's a really interesting point, is we tend to focus on what we see on television, what we talk about online. McLuhan said, you know what, the what, the content, is not as important as the configuration of the medium. So, you know, a, a good example back then is it's a very big difference to see a movie in a motion picture theater, right, and to see that same movie on a television screen. Because if you're seeing it on a television screen, that's usually at home. It's, you know, you and your friends, you and your family, just a couple of people. You're inside, you're private. But when you see a movie in a motion picture theater, you're there with a crowd of people. Usually you don't know most of them. In fact, almost all the time, the most number of people you know are maybe the few people you came with to the movie. So you're sitting with a, in a room in the dark with a crowd of strangers seeing a movie. That's a big deal. It, it actually uh, gives us a different feeling, a different impression of, of the content. 
which is the actual movie. And if you think about it uh, today, uh, you know, as you know, and I'm sure uh, all of our listeners know, uh, people are constantly saying, what kind of president is Trump? Not even so much in terms of what he is saying, which is also true, and what he's doing, but the fact that he communicates so much on Twitter. So, in other words, it's not even what he's saying on Twitter. It's that here we now have a president who is using Twitter as a platform for communication. So he's held almost no press conferences, uh, but he constantly communicates through Twitter. McLuhan would have a field day with that, and anyone who has studied media would also, because that's an example of of the medium is the message and in fact you know not to get too much into politics you can almost uh, argue and, and many people including McLuhan and I have also that uh, success in politics depends in many ways on the uh, talent that the candidate has on the most important media of their time. So in a now very famous example, you know, we have a, you know, we're now we have debates obviously all the time on television, political debates among primary candidates, then debates among the two party candidates. Well, the, the first televised debate happened in 1960. It was the Kennedy-Nixon debate. And uh, in a really uh, quirky but very instructive little uh, impromptu uh, survey that was done after the debate, a majority of people who heard the debate on radio thought Nixon did better. A majority of people who saw the debate on television thought JFK did better. Unfortunately for Nixon, over 90% of the people saw the debate on television, didn't listen to it on the radio. So there you have a perfect example of the medium is the message, because it's the same debate, it's the same candidates, it's the same words coming out of their mouth. But people who saw that on television, you know, John F. Kennedy, he was cool, he was relaxed, he was on top of it. Richard Nixon looked nervous, sweaty, he had a five o'clock shadow, he just didn't look as good on television. And, uh, you know, there are many reasons why, going back to 2016, uh, that uh, Donald Trump won the Electoral College. He obviously didn't win the popular vote. But I would certainly say one of the reasons is Twitter. You know, Trump uh, understood, I don't know how much he ever even read or heard of McLuhan, but he understood that this was a new medium and he could communicate uh, effectively through that medium. And although Hillary Clinton had a Twitter account, people didn't pay as much attention to her tweets as Donald Trump's tweets. Would you compare this then to like Ronald Reagan with television or FDR with radio then? Yes, absolutely. Those are another uh, two excellent examples. Uh, and it was not only FDR in the 1930s. Uh, FDR obviously was a good guy. You had some bad guys who also understood radio, like Adolf Hitler. Uh, he, uh, as a matter of fact, he Hitler was w- wounded in a, uh, a bomb plot, uh, and um, for a while, in the, this was like 1943. Uh, it looked like the military was going to rise up and replace him in Germany. But his minister of uh, 
propaganda and popular enlightenment, Joseph Goebbels brought a microphone into his hospital room, and Hitler addressed the nation, and that saved his presidency. He was a very effective speaker on radio. FDR, it's not a coincidence that he was elected four times to the presidency. You know, in those days, I mean, all of this was very new, and people were just getting radios in their home, and they would sit around and listen to Roosevelt's fireside chats, as they called them, and they really felt a connection uh, to Roosevelt. As a matter of fact, you know, my parents grew up then, uh, were alive then, and they used to tell me they always felt that Roosevelt was a member of the family, because here he was, here was his voice talking in their home. So that that's absolutely uh, true about Roosevelt. And, you know, again, another good guy, Winston Churchill, uh, England is, you know, pretty much on its knees. Uh, the Nazis have overrun uh, France and most of Europe, and uh, England looked like it would be next on the list. And Churchill was able, through the power of his voice and radio, to rally the the British people and and uh, you you're completely right about Reagan as well now in, in the case of Ronald Reagan obviously he was an actor so he knew how to look and sound good on television and he used that to his advantage both in terms of the actual 1980 uh, presidential election in which he trounced Jimmy Carter but he was easily reelected and was a very popular and successful president. By the way, Barack Obama is interesting because he represents a transition. You know, he comes in in 2008. Uh, the Internet and, and social media are not yet completely fully in place in the way they are today. Because if you think about it, you didn't even have Twitter and YouTube until 2005, 2006. So uh, there's just a few years after that that Obama runs for the presidency. But he had some Internet presence, and he was very telegenic. And the same was pretty much true in 2012. Again, 2016 marks a turning point, and, and that's where the Internet becomes so important. And, you know, I've been talking about Twitter, but Facebook is another aspect of this. The, the whole uh, clever uh, approach of Cambridge Analytica, which realizes that Facebook is keeping track of their users' interests. I mean, that's what Facebook does. They do that so they can support their own uh, advertising, which obviously they're selling to companies. And Facebook is saying, hey, if you take out ads with us, we'll be able to fine-tune uh, the people that are exposed to the ads because we know what their interests are. This is something that every advertiser wants to do. And the Republican Party realized that this could be a very powerful tool. And in many ways, uh, the, the ads on Facebook, which were really precisely targeted towards people who Facebook knew based on their likes and dislikes and what they were saying in conversations, Facebook knew that these people would be more responsive to pro-Trump ads. And the Democratic campaign didn't do any of that. By the way, that wasn't actually the first time. It, slightly before the 2016 election uh, in, in England and Britain, Brexit actually and the, the vote to leave the 
European Union uh, by uh, British people. That that campaign also featured Cambridge Analytica targeting the pro-Brexit uh, voters. So uh, we live now in an age, and McLuhan, again, would have a lot to say about, obviously I do, in which understanding how the medium is the message is a key essential ingredient in having a successful political campaign. Okay. So I want to kind of shift back a little bit to Asimov, especially with his three laws of robotics, and talk about how do you think they would relate to the way the world's going now, especially with AI? Well, that's a very good question. You, you know, one would hope that uh, every AI that's invented, every use of artificial intelligence would respond uh, to the uh, three laws. Uh, but, of course, the three laws were science fiction, and in reality, it's not that simple. For example, if you think about driverless cars, which uh, Tesla other companies you know, are developing, they're designed to enhance uh, human existence, that is, get us from one place to another in our cars in a way that's safer and more effective than human beings driving cars. So, you know, with a driverless car, if you're tired, as a driver, it doesn't matter because the car's driving for you. If you've had a little to drink, even if you're not over the limit, so legally you're okay, but you might be slightly impaired, doesn't matter uh, because the driverless car is taking care of that. Uh, someone once did a study, I think again in England, that sneezing is a cause of accidents. And if you think about it, right, you're driving, especially fast on a highway, and like you, you know, like uh, you have you know some kind of allergy or a cold, and you start sneezing your head off. That's not a particularly safe thing to do either because, you know, you lose a tiny bit of concentration the instant you're sneezing. So driverless cars and AIs uh, on that level are acting according to Asimov's first law. But here's something uh, to think about. There already was a driverless car, I think, out in um, uh, someplace in the West, maybe Phoenix or Tucson. I can't remember exactly where. But, but tragically, it killed somebody who uh, was like jaywalking or something, like in an unusual way. I don't remember what the circumstances were. But unfortunately, the program didn't respond and recognize that person as a pedestrian. And um, <clears throat> there actually uh, is, uh, getting back to science fiction, a great novel that explores this. Uh, it's, it's called uh, Three Laws Lethal, and uh, the author is David... Uh, Walton, W-A-T-W-A-L-T-O-N. Uh, in fact, I just saw him at Philcon. And this novel opens up with a scene which really captures the problem with uh, applying the three laws to current AI, especially in uh, uh, automobiles, uh, self-driving. You, you have a woman in the opening scene driving in the rain with her kids. And uh, a big tree falls right in front of them. And the AI, this is in a driverless car, the AI sees that and swerves out of the way. So that's great, right? So the, the mother and the children are saved. But 
there is a guy on a motorcycle who's in the next lane, and the car swerves into the motorcycle and kills that guy. Now, maybe a human being driving it would have swerved out of instinct, and that would have happened also. But here you have the, the sort of cold uh, fact that the AI computed that what it had to do to save the woman and her children was swerve out of the way in that you know instant that's you know the ai made that computation in a split second and and the ai knew because it, you know obviously it had sensors all over the place it knew that uh, there was a motorcycle next to it but that was the only way it could save the woman so the ai made the decision that the woman woman the mother and her children were more important than the uh guy on the motorcycle who, who then dies a terrible death. So this captures uh, what the uh, problem is uh, with artificial intelligence. I've actually also, uh, you, you know, written uh, a lot about, uh, in fact, I just came out with a small book about uh, Westworld and uh, the human rights of the hosts on Westworld. Um, and this is something I've been thinking about for, for decades, actually. If we continue to improve uh, the quality of AI, and it gets to the point where it's sentient. In other words, the, the, our AIs have a level of intelligence that is equivalent to ours. By what right do we then have to, to continue to use them as slaves? Right? So again, to get back to the driverless car, although there are many, you know, myriad of examples, but in the driverless car, even aside from who gets killed in, in the rain, uh, if we have like a sentient car, I get into the car and say, hey, uh, you know, drive me to the supermarket, and I need to pick up some milk and juice, uh, we wouldn't uh, be too happy because, no, I don't really feel like doing that now. You know, I'd, I'd rather actually go to the beach. Can I'll, I'll drive you there. How does that sound? But but that's what we expect of sentient beings that are not our slaves. They have free will. They can do what they want. So there are, you know, a huge number of uh, issues and problems, some of which Asimov foresaw, some of which he didn't. But you can uh, use his work as a jumping-off point to try to understand what's going on with AI today. All right, because like most people today, when they think of AI, they kind of have this fearful vision that pops up in their head. Since you are a science fiction writer, would you have a more positive viewpoint or a more negative viewpoint of it? Asimov, by and large, had a positive viewpoint, as do I. So, um, you know, I just saw the new Terminator movie last week, and by the way, I'll, I'll just give a shout out for it. It was actually very good. A lot of people were saying they didn't like it. You know, it didn't do that well at the box office. Uh, but I think uh, the critics are wrong about that. But um, th that kind of uh, nightmare scenario, uh, and, and that actually goes back uh, in science fiction before Asimov. There was a famous play called R.U.R., uh, written by uh, uh, someone in Czechoslovakia way, way, way back, like in the uh, 1920s and 30s. His name was Karol Kapek. And um, 
that basically tells a story that's been repeated now many, many times. AIs are invented, but they get to the point where they have minds of their own. As I was just saying, you know, they're, they're sentient, they're, they're independent thinkers, and they come to resent and want to enslave and or kill the very humans that uh, made them in the first place. I don't think that's going to happen, and I, I should say here that... You know, science fiction deals with many things. Space travel is something that we already do in reality, and uh, now the science fiction part of it is just going further than we've already gone, like sending uh, a spaceship to Alpha Centauri. Um, time travel is something that's very popular in science fiction. I write a lot of it. Uh, it's my favorite uh, part of science fiction, actually. But uh, as far as I know, nobody has done it at all. And uh, as far as AI is concerned, the most intelligent entities that we've created are nothing like humanly intelligent. Uh, First of all, they usually can only do one thing, so, you know, that's not the way uh, human or organic intelligence works. And essentially, uh, they are sophisticated parrots, meaning if you listen to a parrot speak, hey, it sounds like the parrot is fluent in that language, but that's not really what's going on. And, you know, the way AIs operate, they are performing as a result of programming, and even, quote, learning, unquote, is the result of being programmed in a very specific way to learn. And, and yes, they are extraordinary in many ways, but I don't think at this point they, they're anything even remotely like uh, human intelligence, meaning I don't think we have to worry that they're going to get angry and, you know, uh, try to take us over or kill us. Uh, and I don't think, uh, on the other hand, the problem that I was describing, we're a long way off from worrying, is it wrong to create a sentient, artificially intelligent being and treat it like a slave? Because there is nothing on the horizon like a, a truly sentient, artificial, intelligent being. Okay. Because, like, I've talked with some other people who are... Um kind of concerned about AI, and they've kind of compared it to when Columbus met the Native Americans. Would you have any comment on that? Yeah, I, I don't think they're at all uh, like that, because um, the Native Americans who lived here before Columbus came here were human beings, right? I mean, they had a very different culture, but uh, they were as human as Columbus and the people on his ship. And, uh, again, this gets back to wh what is an AI. AIs are, are not at all like uh, human beings. They're just a sophisticated uh, series of algorithms that are programmed, and, and they can perform very impressive things. But that uh, kind of intelligence is, is not really at all human intelligence or even living intelligence. Um, and, and this is an important point. I think that life 
as far as we know it, is an absolutely necessary prerequisite for intelligence, right? I mean, the, the only place that we know intelligence has arisen is in human beings, and we are biological entities that have evolved uh, here on Earth. And, uh, you know, the only places we see even glimmers of that kind of intelligence is in other animals like, you know, chimps and, you know, great apes and, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, animals who uh, are also obviously organic, biological, and some level of intelligence has developed in them. But, uh, you know, I call the attempt to develop a truly artificially intelligent sentient being before we understand the relationship of intelligence and life i call that putting descartes before the horse and uh... i think that's an important uh... point and that's why you know comparisons to uh... human beings enslaving other human beings uh... don't really have at this point, any applicability to the relationship of human beings to these machines and computer programs that we create. All right. So I only got a little bit of time left, and I just want to ask you one question to kind of top off this interview. Since you're a science fiction writer, do you have a favorite science fiction movie or franchise? Um... I think my all-time favorite science fiction movie, if I had to just pick one movie, would be 12 Monkeys. This was made in the 1990s. Remember I said I really love time travel? Uh, yeah. Because that movie really respects the paradoxes uh, that arise when people travel to the past and try to change things. All too often uh, that uh, that doesn't happen um as far as uh you know series um i don't know i i guess it would be a, like many people a tie between the star wars and star trek uh series um the big difference being obviously that star wars also has a television uh part of their overall uh, presentation to, to us, the audience. And so in, in that sense, Star Trek has like an avenue that we can approach it on that's in addition to what we get with uh, Star Wars. But they're both really excellent. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. Hey, I enjoyed the interview. Me too. <laughs>